Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra fanfaric edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber Musical Comedy Podcast that caught Sandra D composing a love poem to Ozzy Osbourne. And speaking of D composing, I'm Aaron, and I'm joined as usual by my Illinois-born host and collaborator, as in Illinois you till you're born a headache, it's Spencer the Broadway Spy. How's it going? Going great, Aaron. Excited for today. Yes, good, good. Me too. Just let me catch my breath because this is a long one. I tell you that. Goodness gracious me. Anyways, guess what? What, Aaron? We've scored a legendary film composer on the soundtrack today. So as the lights go down and the big screen comes to life with a dun 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 it's called the magic of this turbo man whose musical motifs have manipulated emotions and motivated millions of movie fans to moan gasp cry and fall in love since he followed his first love and his father the hero into film music in the orchestra before orchestrating his own niche as an orchestrator who will stop the rain so the surfers can enjoy big wednesday until a run-in with jaws 2 electric brusselou had the players breaking away whilst the prodigious performer found himself ambling about the house of spielberg Using his skills on 1941, Poltergeist, E.T., Twilight Zone, Amazing Stories, The Flintstones, Stage Chosen, Moviesicle, plus Dino saw him conducting the 2019 Jurassic Park concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Hollywood would be bowled over by this legend's legacy. It isn't funny. Unlike his quirky compositional contributions to comedy, where he whisked William and Theodore off on two adventurous journeys, whilst their little monsters led a mutiny in the madhouse. So I'm now the man of the house, but don't tell mum the babysitter's dead because the Coneheads are coming at 4.20 and I love trouble, Tommy boy. So it's no trouble throwing a huge Aussie g'day and a dun 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 So this Aussie fox kicks off Operation Dubbo drop the kids off at night school where the big bully can sort them out and we can jingle all the way out to see stars on a galaxy quest that'll leave you bedazzled even if you've never been kissed on a girl's trip by a naked monster in lawless undercover blues clubs nor learned how to lose a guy in 10 days using just one cat in the hat and 102 Dalmatians. Oh puppies. That'll do pup. That'll scooby-doo like this monstrous maestro has unleashed the critters with long tails from the crypt and fed them a short frankenweenie because if you love animated movie scores then you're in paradise now kids even if it is an ice age so we need to warm our duck tails over the brave little toaster before rushing to hear his oscar nominated score for anastasia with heather heather oh heather on our honeymoon in viva rock vegas because in our fairy tale theater even lady luck and see stars in the runes so we're lucky to welcome to our broke down palace the star who made his acting debut in the runestone before being benched on the ball field filling the air up there in the sandlot by singing the cookie chant to cheer on the mighty ducks as they become champions just like when the nutty professor twice waved a bowfinger at eddie and dr doolittle too which propelled daddy day care in orbit spending other people's money to score danny devito's doctoral efforts where our super talented guest used his saxon violins to throw mama hoffa train during the war of the roses because it's death to smoochie in this duplex plus the most violent of them all 
Matilda. So like Spencer the Broadway spy next door, we're returning the baby from Baby's World League gobsmacking Korea, while boys on the side duets, are we there yet, Karina Karina, or are you still checking out the cave looking for the phantom, the spirit who walks like a beauty, and a beast in serenity, but still totally full of excitement because all this and more makes up the soundtrack to our lives? So it's truly the greatest joy to pass the ammo and praise the Lord, or I'll end up eating worms, because friends come in all sizes and this one shaped like genius, so green eggs and ham it right up for the bone-chillingly gifted Sir David Newman. Goodness gracious me, what the hell are you doing on my show? What is happening in this world? That was a mouthful. I've never heard that. That was probably everything. I, I, there's stuff that you know that uh, nobody knows. So um, I appreciate that. That was awesome. That was not everything, David. I had to say, see you later to this thing and that thing and this thing and just fit what I could. It's still, as we say, quite a mouthful. Yes, awesome. I did try to put every film that I had seen of yours in, which is about 50. Yeah, I, I think I have, about, I have about 120 maybe. I don't know. It was a lot. Yes. There, there used to be used to do a lot of movies when I started in a year. Uh, it's a little it's a little different now, but uh, it was fun. That was that was a blast from the past. I'll tell you. Yes, so. I, I tell you, you, you say it was a mouthful. It was. I practiced that about fifteen times. I still screwed up all the way through that. I heard myself ticking over, and I'm like, oh god, I'm screwing this up. Now, early in your career, you were in the orchestra for a hell of a lot of films. Yeah, I was, including Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I cut out. And uh, I wasn't in that. My wife played in that. My wife is. A violinist too. oh your wife yeah oh. my wife didn't but we grew up in the west side of los angeles yeah and i was a violinist when you're a violinist from a really young age and you just you start working you know you're 13 14 you're, you're playing in weddings and whatever you can do for money you know you're doing and then you start kind of playing little gigs when you're 20 we went to school at usc which is in los angeles which was like the conservatory in the west side of the west united states and then we just started playing a group of us and then we sort of matriculated into these 70s, like 77 for about eight years. There was just tons of work if you could play. So uh, a bunch of friends of ours that played all the time, we were all professionals for that amount of time. And then I switched to film after after that. But definitely you got some of the stuff I played on. Okay, okay good. You know, we get a check every year after market check, all the musicians that are in America that are in the union, and it lists all the movies that you played on. So sometimes I glance at it to see, oh, I played on this. Oh, I played like Big Wednesday. That's that, that Basil Polidorus movie. I remember that. Yeah. Well, um, funnily enough, Ferris Bueller is on your IMDb, which is where I got that from. Yeah, I used to work with Ira at Newborn. I, he he did a movie called Wise Guys yeah. with DeVito and um and the other guy from Saturday Night Live. And I wrote a cue for him on that movie. But Chris, we were really good friends with Ira and my wife played on Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Well, you know, not all that stuff is correct, as you know. So Yeah, we, we learned that the hard way on this show. Yeah. And I look like a fool. Like I go through all that effort. Remember that that takes a few days to write and then I've got to practice it. And I sit here and perform it. And so often a guest will say, yeah. no, I didn't do that thing. Yeah. And I'm like, I am just so sorry. I'm clearly not unresearched. Like it's not a deliberate thing. It's the internet. We blame the internet. No, you got, you, you, you I, got a lot of it. Uh, yeah, uh, awesome. You know, you know a lot of it or you researched it. So I, I, I congratulate you. Yeah. You did great. Thank you very much. I've, I've got a lot to live up to. So how are you going after that? Are you as tired as I am? Oh, I'm not tired at all. It's it's uh, <laughs> 11 a.m. here in Los Angeles. So I'm I'm great. You must be exhausted. So yep. I went to Sydney um, oh, wow. maybe in 2000. 
14, I conducted West Side Story, the the, the 61 movie live. Yeah, yeah. I'm very good friends with Simon Windsor, who is, you know, is Australian. I did the Phantom for him in Operation Dumbo Drop, an unfortunate name, which is, it's a very nice little movie. Just, yeah. It's not the greatest name. But I remember going to Melbourne, I mean, uh, Sydney, and I was fine in Sydney. It was great. I wasn't jet lagged at all. But when I went back to LA, I have never been so jet lagged in my life. It was yeah. a week to recover. Yeah. So I've never, I've never been back. My, my wife has a lot of family in um, Sydney. So we had, we had a great time. It, yeah. We were there for a week, but um, it was killer that, that flight. Oh, lovely. So. Yeah, it's, I, as I was saying to Spencer the other day, if I'm ever lucky enough to have a rock star ride or I'm going to fly to wherever and catch a cruise ship back, just let me take my time. And it is so much easier because we did that from Hawaii. A cruise yeah. ship back and it was it was beautiful but anyways you are having such a phenomenal career and one name keeps popping up and that's scooby-doo you are our first bingo we finally have a matching poster with a guest but um when i was 17 i actually got a tattoo on my arm if we can have a look it's not colored in but um but yeah so that begs the question do you have any tattoos no no oh no i'm too well i'm too old for tattoos that's that's your generation you are never too old. no no way never too old for tattoos what did you think of scooby-doo when you first saw it totally biased were you a fan of the the cartoon the the animated stuff yes loved yeah so was it weird seeing a lot because i wasn't really i wasn't a huge fan of the of the cartoon i loved i grew up with bugs bunny and 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 that sort of stuff but um was it weird seeing scooby-doo I was, how old was I? I was 17. I was a huge Buffy fan, for one thing, and an Australian, and it was filmed in Australia. Mm -hmm. Plus a huge Scooby-Doo fan. Completely 110% biased. Loved it. Five stars. Mm -hmm. So I know people along the way don't like it. It's gotten a lot of criticisms. It's just a, a bit of camp fun, really, at the end of the day. It's like the Brady Bunch movie. Yeah. I love yeah. the Brady Bunch movie. And the Beverly Hillbillies yeah. movie. Stupid and camp. Yeah. Scooby-Doo's a little different than those, though. Especially the yeah. second one got pretty uh, dark. Yeah, it did. I think they were trying for something that it isn't like the Brady Bunch movie that much, I don't think. It is campy, but it was kind of really filmic, too. They were trying to make a real fee anyway. So be that as it may. Just curious. And you know what? 21 years later, I still have not ridden the roller coaster. Uh, we'll move on to the metal now. Uh, you, you have told me that you don't have any experience with metal. This is what I have experience with. I grew up in the 60s in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with Hendrix and Jethro Tull, who I loved, but also Led Zeppelin. And I don't get the definition of metal because they sound like blues rock bands to me. It's just a little more entertaining, I guess, visually, but it's not that far removed. I mean, a lot of it just sounds like Zeppelin to me. Yeah. So I loved Zeppelin. The Beatles and the Stones, I didn't like as much then as I like now. But I, my brother and I totally grew up on this stuff. We got a record player when we were, you know, nine years years old my dad bought us and we bought lps the first lp we had was the first hendrix album you know hendrix is totally metal i think so i don't know how would you define metal um Oh, we're 90 something episodes in and I'm still confused. Yeah, I really am because there's so many different types because there's glam metal, which Bowie falls under. Um, and even like Yima Sumac did a, a prog rock album, which we've covered, you know, we've covered Led Zeppelin. But is it the lyrics or the music or like I'm, I'm a big classical music fan. And obviously when we grow up playing violin, you're, you're you just you study the stuff. And there are lots of genres 
genres. I mean, there is Baroque, it's classical, it's, it, it's, it's that stuff. And there are forms and, and everything. And pop music is like, it's all sort of rhythm and blues based. So I noticed the lyrics are a certain thing and then the way it's presented and everything. But metal just sounds, it's still a few chords that you move around in, you know, your, your one, four, five, two, six, you know, whatever. Yeah. And some of the metal's like really funny and kind of fun and kind of proto-punk in a way. Yes. But I loved new wave and punk. That was something when I was in my 30s. Like Danny Elfman's band Oingo Boingo was a big LA band and they were fantastic live. They're the one of the best live bands I've ever seen. None of their records remotely got to what they were like live. They would play in clubs like um th there were these clubs where where the police originally played the motels you remember that band maybe that's a, a u.s yeah, band no. madam wong's which was a doubt like in downtown la but madam wong's had a, a club on the west side where you know we all grew up where westwood is where everybody went to the movies over the weekend was in the west side of los angeles i loved that but the metal thing was just kind of like a stepchild <laughs> it's like a it's anger yeah less sophisticated I, I i guess for what we were you know and like we were really into musicals and classical music as well. And like Oingo Boingo did a cover of California Girls, the Beach Boys song yep, yep. that would drop an eighth note. So the chorus would be like a hiccup in it. And it was like hysterically funny. And it was a great cover, but in the chorus, it was just like, what? They would go, always wanna be California, always wanna be California, always. And that like appealed to our kind of pseudo, what we thought snobby sophistication. So that, that was sort of the rock and roll of our time here in Los Angeles that we grew up. But we loved Hendrix. I don't know how familiar you are with Hendrix, but the second album is Axis Bold as Love. Spanish Castle Magic. Is not, it, anyway, Castle's Made of Sand. We went to a concert, my brother and I, when we were, I was like 14. We had to get driven there and it there was like a riot and it was, it was this, it was 1968. So it was like getting really nutty in America particularly in San Francisco and LA. And there were like 40 cops lined up around the stage, but we actually got to see Hendrix live. Oh, wow. It was in fucking credible. Oh my God. Unbelievable God. live. Like those guys could all play and like Jethro Tull, thick as a brick, like at Madison Square Garden, all could play live. So that's where I'm coming from. So wow. just as a matter of background. And that, but that's like, that's more experience than a lot of people who have come in and, and love metal. Spencer, maybe you can define metal. Well, so You're, you are the music student. Yeah, I'm at the new school. I study jazz and contemporary music. I have a problem with genre. Yeah. Putting things into boxes. I think it's really difficult. There's a couple of genres that I think it's easy to put things into. And I think that it's rock, country, and jazz that are the, the three genres that it's really easy to pinpoint things into. Anything other than that, I think it's it's very difficult. And I think metal is just, I think more than a, I mean, it's definitely very punchy drums, very bright cymbals, very crunchy guitars. And the vocals, it's like the, the vocals, the screaming, like angry vocal. The vocals definitely have a sound. And it's not that they're saying always angry stuff. The lyrics aren't always angry. It's just the presentation is this screaming kind of um, uh, thing. Rah, 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 as I call it on this show. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, I just I want to throw in there quickly before we get onto your review, Spencer. Uh, Dave, you just said the word proto-punk. Early in this show, I said that word, and my co-host turned to me and said, that's not a thing. 
yes, it darn well is. I'm declaring it now a thing. And lo and behold, two years later, you have come on my show and said the word protopunk is a thing. Let it be known. Anyway, (laughs) sorry, I just had to throw in there. It's just punk is just funny. It's like, like it was more for me, the new wave thing. The new wave thing was more funny. I mean, punk could be, I, I wasn't in New York where that all was, you know, punk could be really mean and violent and everything, but it just was crappy playing as a way of uh, communicating. But Oingo Boingo for me, for us, like personified this new wave kind of LA West Coast thing. They never broke out anywhere else, really. Uh, they are so popular in LA still, even though Elfman doesn't, they play and Elfman doesn't sing with them all the time, but they can do a Hollywood Bowl concert and sell it out. They'll do a Halloween concert and can and can sell it. So anyway, yeah. I, I just gave that to you as like what my view of, 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 of rock and roll. And I thought that band that you said, it's called Kicks. Yeah, so their big song sounds like a Zeppelin song, the ballad. That was their big, okay. I guess- I wrote that down. The, the big hit is what? What's the name of it? The um, tear down the walls. Yeah, I think that's yep. what it was. Um, it's, it sounds like stairway to like a ripoff of Stairway to Heaven, doesn't it? Kind of. That was the thought that I had as well. That it was very Zeppelin-y. But it's still presented in a different way, you know. I guess you know. To your point, Spencer, it is genres are, are weird. They're weird, and even though you can tell, like a Mozart symphony is a classical Viennese symphony, there's all this other stuff that isn't transitions and you know it's just a way to sort of like get your head around stuff but once you know about it you can sort of differentiate i just don't know anything about metal so i can't really be uh nuanced uh, have anything nuanced to say about it so well you are pretty much a rock star let's face it if you could put anything your ultimate craziest rock star rider what would be in it Oh, oh, uh, no, I don't do, I don't, I don't, I don't. It's just the way Alfred Newman kind of went through the period that he went through. He was a Broadway conductor in the 20s. Uh, He did, you know, Irving Berlin and Gershwin, and he was a top Broadway conductor. And that's where they, so was Max Steiner, by the way. And that's where they pulled from to, to start talking films in the 30s. But my dad had no experience writing music, Alfred Newman. And so he had to sort of learn on the on the job. So I don't think he ever considered himself a true composer in the sense that maybe Steiner did or Korngold obviously did or any of those guys. So it's more it's more like he was more of a conductor, a, a, a I don't know, a little more blue collar about the whole thing rather than being, you know, I'm the. I'm the genius. I do everything myself. And and these music departments were very collaborative. They had lots of composers on. They they all helped each other out. It's just it's just a different sort of thing. So there's very little prima donna-ish DNA in my family. Yeah. Quite frankly. So. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. We'll, we'll we'll let it slide this time. Usually I'd argue with a guest. I'm like, no, you you are giving us a unicorn or something. But I I that I didn't know that about your father. Like I, I know you, your father's career um, being a conductor on Broadway in the 1920s because we had Josh Stolberg, who's a screenwriter of um, like the Saw movies, the recent ones, and it, like Piranha 3D. And his great grandfather was a producer on Broadway in the 1920s. So who knows if they ever cross paths? And then both of you have ended up on my show only a few episodes apart. Mind blown. When I conduct at the bowl, when I do the John Williams concerts, he graciously has me split.
split the concert because it's, you know, he doesn't want to do the whole thing. I talked about this thing about my father did a did a Broadway show in 1920 that that had some Gershwin songs in it. And he yeah. had become very friendly with Gershwin in the aughts. And he did this show that Max Steiner was the music director for. And the stage manager was George Cukor, the, the famous director. Yeah, it- they were all 20 years old doing a Broadway show in the 1920s. Oh, wow. Having no idea 10, la- 10 years later. I mean, can you imagine thinking there are going to be, you know, 10 years later, this giant industry of talking movies? They had no idea. Yeah. Like you said, probably a lot of people were floating around on Broadway in New York in the 20s and they got commandeered to Hollywood. My dad came to Hollywood. They're not going back to New York. Hollywood was where the money is, where the women are, where everything is. So they all stayed and, and, and you know, worked their way through it. Yeah. And the 30s is an amazing time. If any of your viewers are film people watch some movies like 1931, 32, 33. They're like from a different planet. Yep. And if you're interested in music, watch how music is used. Sometimes there's no music. Sometimes it's wall-to-wall music. They had no idea what to do. They were experimenting. It's pre-code too. So some of the, there's some very racy stuff in those early films and, and beautiful black and white photography because they had obviously figured that out. Very primitive sound, but they were, they every year the sound got better and better better and you know 1939 is gone with the wind wizard of oz you're in a fully functional mature sound art form in nine years essentially it's an amazing feat what happened if you if you look at it, it's very interesting to look at yes I, i'm a huge fan of cinema myself it's that's actually my first love more than um musicals I, at spencer this album was such a different one than most of the others that we've listened to on the podcast i thought that the the first track was very different um ethereal uh, i i didn't really think of most of this album as metal it was very much for me just like hard rock um and when you get to that that first song hot wire it's this very um I don't really know how to describe it. It's a very tight sound, um, whereas I think a lot of the rest of the record is very, uh, instruments sound less together um, for me. I also uh, thought the album was too long, um, and I think probably my least favorite track on this record was liar liar uh well, sorry it was pants on fire liar liar um and he be gb crush were my two least favorite songs on this record um i liked rock and roll overdose i thought it was kind of cool um but the rest of the album just really didn't do it for me that much um yeah but but i liked the the band um just this album was not my favorite. Okay, uh, so David, I know you had a, a listen to this album. So what did you think of this? You know, 
it's it's interesting. I'm just not a metal fan, you know, and I yep. thought it was some of its derivative. It's very catchy. I watched a YouTube video of them in Baltimore. Is yep. that where they're from? Balt they're they're from the East Coast somewhere. They're yeah, yeah. And they're an 80. It, it looks like an old 80s band, but they're still playing, you know. Oh, they just broke up. That's why I picked them. Sorry. Yeah. But they've been playing live, you know, like like the Stones are the Stones are still playing. I mean, it's a it's a different kind of concert, you know, that somebody my age might be interested in going to if you're interested in that. So, you know, I, I, they can play and they certainly can play live, you know, yep. which is more than, you know, they're not they're not lip syncing. So no. I don't know. I, I, I don't have much to say about it, actually. So, yeah. Well, I thought the, the vocals were a little bit ACDC. The other reason why I picked them was because they've got one song, Heartache, which is a total bop. I love it. I have it on like two or three playlists. And so I thought, let's check out an album, a different album that this isn't on. But this album wasn't as boppy. This this album did seem a little bit angrier than Heartache, which is very boppy. And I really do love that one song. So I guess I don't know a band from one song. But it was still fun and camp. It was sleazy and easy. I thought the highlights were Bump the La La. That was really camp um, and very, very sleazy. Uh, Same Jane was very bluesy and sounded a lot like Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap. Uh, and I liked Girl Money. I thought that was Bob. But I gave it three and a half stars. What did you give it, Spencer? This was one of my least favorite ones that we've done. Yeah. Um, And so I gave it a, a 3.2. A 3.2, very specific. Did you have a, a score out of five? Uh, I'd say three. Yeah. 3.0. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a, it seems to be about the average. How many al- how many albums did they make? Uh, know? 10, it says on here. So there, there may be some that aren't released and that, Maybe at least one that's live. Um, I'm not sure. But, um, like, they're they're still fun. It's just there was nothing on this album that made me want to immediately put it onto a playlist. Like, when I first heard heard Heartache, which we were going to do in an episode with Hairspray. So it was a whole Baltimore thing. But anyways, it looks like we've got our kicks. So now I need a cold shower and a nap or an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. With summer about to bring a whole lot of tourists to New York, we thought we better check out what are the hottest tickets on Broadway for this summer season. So for the next few weeks, Spencer the Broadway Spy is going to be diving into the Broadway box office to let us know what's selling like hotcakes. It's Spencer the Broadway Spy. Welcome to this week's box office breakdown. Today we're going to talk about the week ending in June 11th, 2023, which means it is the last week before the Tony Awards. Now, next week we'll be talking about what the Tony Awards did for all of these shows' grosses, but also we have some shows that are closing this week. We have A Doll's House, who ended their run with grossing $974,000 with 100% capacity. Always great to see a show close and do that well their closing week. We then have the Thanksgiving play, which closed with $264,000, 79% capacity. It's a play at a nonprofit. I'm surprised at the the capacity, but, you know, it was a great play. I'm I'm glad to have seen it. With the week before the Tonys, we're going to focus on the Best Musical nominees. We have Anne Juliet, which grossed $1.1 million at 98% capacity. We have Kimberly Akimbo, who grossed $526,000, at 97% capacity. Hopefully, if 
things go the way that we want them to. And of course, it is uh, after the Tony Awards, so we know Kimberly Kimbo did win Best Musical. So hopefully next week we'll see uh, them raise their prices because they have great capacity. They have 97% capacity. They just need uh, their people to be paying more per ticket. And then we have New York, New York, which grossed eight hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, with seventy nine percent capacity. I would be very surprised if we see New York, New York, still here by holiday season. So go get your tickets. It's a wonderful show that truly celebrates this incredible city. Then of course we have Shucked, which grossed just under seven hundred thousand dollars with 97 percent capacity again i think uh the performance that they did on the tony awards will hopefully um impact their prices um and their very smart producer mike bosner will hopefully raise their prices for that show then we have some like it hot back in the one million dollar club with 88 percent capacity so there we have the issue of their Audience members are paying more per ticket. It's just there's not as many of them as there are at the other shows. But you also have to remember, Some Like It Hot is in the Schubert Theater, which is a larger theater than where Kimberly Akimbo is and a larger theater than where Shucked is. So it is really interesting. We also have to think about the fact that uh, the St. James, where New York, New York is, the Nederlander, where Shucked is, and the Schubert, where Some Like It Hot is, are three of the most wanted theaters on Broadway. So there are shows... There are lists 10 long to get into that theater. And so um, if they don't do as well, it will be very easy for these uh, shows to be replaced in these theaters. And then we have, of course, um, our revival nominees. We have Sweeney Todd, which grossed $1.9 million with 101% capacity. Doing great. Again, it's a show with two stars um and they have no discount tickets available um no rush no their lottery seats are there are not a lot of them um they are not doing tdf they are barely on tkts and so um hopefully they lower their prices a little bit now and allow um more people to see this show and then we have of course parade with one million dollars and 94 percent capacity again if their prices are pretty normal. Uh, their average ticket price is around $140. And so it's uh, they're in a good place. They're probably making a pretty good profit on that one. And then, of course, we have Camelot with almost $700,000 um, at 81% capacity. Lincoln Center is a little different because they are a nonprofit house and a subscription house. And so um, making a million dollars per week is not as important to them because they, they're, they're, of course, at Lincoln Center. They have a pretty large budget anyway. But, of course, I would not be surprised uh, to see Camelot not be here by the time the holidays come around. Uh, in terms of plays, one thing that after the Tonys, hopefully we see the capacity for Leopold shot increase. They were at 63% capacity last week where they were at 100 at the beginning of their run. Um, so hopefully them winning best play uh, affects both their gross and their capacity there. And then same with Life of Pi. Uh, they were at 79% capacity. I, I think that they're making a little bit of money, but I, I would really like to see that capacity up. 
Then we have also the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window, which for a show with two very large stars has very low capacity. There are plenty of tickets available. It's a wonderful show. It's, uh, you know, it's Lorraine Hansberry who wrote Raisin in the Sun. It is such an incredible work performed by a beautiful, amazing ensemble cast. So go see that one if you can before it closes on July 2nd. Anyway, so listening to Thrush and Treasure, I'm Aaron, that's Spencer, Spencer, Bobensa, and we're joined by legendary film composer and Hollywood royalty, David Newman. It's goodness gracious me, you are genuinely Hollywood royalty. I know you're too humble for that term, but you are part of one of the greatest dynasties of film music in entertainment, full stop. Uh, family gatherings, just one big jam session. That's what I really, really want to know. No. No? It's it's a big family. My father was one of 10. Oh, wow. They all moved out to LA from New York when he moved. And um, I think we had a reunion with 85 people five oh, or six years ago. The the uncles are all deceased now. So, um, you know, it's getting, it's getting on in years. But um, a lot of them did music, but a lot of them, most of them didn't do music. I come from a a very large family as well. And like when I was in high school, which, you know, wasn't that long ago, I'd have like 50 people show up to a band concert and like that, that was normal. And it's having a large family is something that's both difficult sometimes, but also really special. Yeah, it's basically all from my father's side. So a lot of the brothers worked, you know, Lionel and Emil and and Mark and uh, uh, Irving. A lot of them were in music. One was a doctor and one was sort of an executive that worked with Bluthorn during the Godfather era at Paramount. But they all grew up dirt poor in the aughts in New Haven, Connecticut. They came from Russian Jewish background and all of them lived in one room with one bathroom, you know, and my father was a prodigy and that's the way they got out. He started working in when he was 12, 13, playing piano for vaudeville and then matriculated to um, Broadway and then Hollywood. And LA was probably amazing in the thirties. It had the, it had arguably the best rapid transit system in the world, which is called the red cars. There was no Valley. It was all the West side of Los Angeles. Ironically, it had this great rapid transit system. And now of course it's just utter crap here. You have to drive two hours to go anywhere. And eventually he paid for all of them to come out, help them get jobs, blah, blah, blah. And they all made a, made a life here. Basically, they all lived in the same area in, in um, the west side of Los Angeles in a place called Pacific Palisades area. And um, pretty much everybody had a house and they all were married. They all had kids and then their kids had kids and blah, blah, blah. So did Spencer's. I don't know, Spencer, nobody, not everybody came to our stuff, but it was a, it was a large group generally that 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 was a that was around so and if, if if you took everyone together it was probably 80 or 90 people large oh, wow so i can't even deal with the 30 something people we've got in my family uh, your father did and the original anastasia mm-hmm. and then you did the animated the classic both classic films uh and then you did the animated film well pretty 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 different i mean i i didn't very different but you know that the his was his his was a you know uh, uh, 
drama feature film. I was a musical. I, I didn't write songs and I arranged a lot of the music were is using the, the songs and, and, and stuff. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty different. Did you see the stage version? I did not. You didn't? Nope. Or? I haven't seen the stage version of Heathers or Matilda either. I don't want to see them. They were the next questions. What about Honeymoon in Vegas? No. No. no you don't want to? I don't want to. No. I love musicals. I just don't want to see anything that's made into a, a musical from a movie I did. So yeah, um, no, that's fair enough. Yeah. I think that's the artist in you, I'm guessing. I, I don't know if it's the artist in me or I just, I, I have enough in my life to deal with and I just yep. didn't want to uh, deal with it. So yep. now that's fair enough. I particularly do not want to see uh, Matilda. Yep. You know, we're doing, we're going to do Matilda live with orchestra in New Jersey, oh, September 9th with Danny DeVito during the, the, the narration, the voiceover that he does in the film. Ooh. So that's September 9th in New Jersey with the New Jersey symphony at the state theater in Newark or something uh, to plug something. Yep. So yeah, I love that movie. That might be worth uh, schlepping out to. Yeah. Do Spencer, if you want, I'll put the details below for our listeners in the area. It'll be announced in the next day or two, so you could go to the website and look at it. So yep. yeah, so I will. This won't be dropping before right. uh, that's announced. Then, anyways, you are lucky though in terms of the films that you've scored that have been turned into musicals. Well received, yeah. You know, sometimes the the stage adaptations of movie musicals aren't the best. You happen to, in terms of your list, have ones that are pretty good adaptations of the films, and you're lucky there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're good bones. I mean, Heather's was a great movie. Matilda's a wonderful story. You know. Um, I didn't know Honey Honeymoon in Vegas was made into a musical. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Yes. So I could talk about it because it's by Jason Robert Brown. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Has written some terribly depressing shows. Yeah. And Honeymoon in Vegas is just like so far a departure from him. I love that show. It's so funny. The score is wonderful. Oh, I love him. Oh, I'll have to check that one yeah. out. Oh, so. there you go. Yeah. When, when 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 was that? Was it in Broadway or in London? Or It was on Broadway in 2015. I think it literally ran for a month or something. No. Yeah, it didn't do well, right? Yeah. It opened on Broadway in start previews November 2014, opened January 2015, closed April 2015. Oh, okay. That's probably why I never heard of it. But I, I love that show. Oh, I will check that. Uh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. But there was all the parachuting Elvises, apparently. Like 50 of them on the Broadway stage. It does, yeah. Oh, I, I'm sure that's the thing is like, it's like you can spectacle that movie. That, that, that's the whole movie is about that one scene. How do, how do I get to that? How do I dramatically get to that scene? Because that I'm, I'm sure that was the the germ of the idea of the movie was the Elvis's parachuting, you know? Yeah. That was Andy, Andy, um, Andrew Bergman. Yeah. Who wrote, um, uh, Blazing Saddle, one of the writers on Blazing Saddle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I done the freshman for him and then I did, I did this for him. So yeah, I remember that cue, that, that cue I did for, um, the parachuting Elvis's was really problematic, hard to figure out. He wanted to do a orchestral version of burning love. It just didn't work. I mean, it was not, without the vocal so i just did some sort of it's an original piece of music but it's based on um you know it's got a lot of or it's very 80s too but i i remember struggling with that and i remember andy it took us a few times to figure that that scene out the rest of it was pretty easy to figure out oh no I, that's great spencer I, that i will look at because i love that guy the jason jason robert brown 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's great. JRB, and he should totally come on this show. Uh, and it was just, I want to throw it in there that um, one of the films that you've scored that I absolutely love uh, is Death to Smoochie. And I would yeah. love to see that done as a William Finn written musical. So if you're listening, William Finn, please seek out Danny DeVito, get the rights, and give me a musical of that. Anyways, we are going to move on to the musical now because you chose West Side Story, and I'm going to pause for the audience to gasp in shock. Because we have talked about this a little bit on this show because uh, I'll read my review quickly. It's only two pages, so I can read through that very, very quickly. Uh, When I was first given West Side Story, it was with vague but lasting memories of the one time I saw the original film and has often been repeated on this show. The ending left me disappointed. So I happily and naively said yes. And then Mr. Newman informed me that he adapted the music for Steven Spielberg's film version. And I admit I nearly peed my pants in fright. Goodness gracious me, what have I done to myself? So setting aside my personal beefs, I found Spielberg's film to be rich visually, the color palette across the costumes somehow adding to the timeless look of the film and the cinematography. As for the music, setting aside the ballads, as there are many, and as racist as this sounds, most ballads do look the same to me. The orchestrations on the faster numbers are exquisite, allowing us to not just hear but feel every emotion in this highly charged story, which I might add is a cop-out. Juliet should die. Anyways, I don't want Broadway coming after me again, so I'm not saying a darn bad word against Stephen Sondheim and you can't make me four stars as a film. I loved Steven Spielberg's film because I I love Steven Spielberg. He's a master filmmaker, full stop. But he's, compared to the original film, I thought this one, it looked like it could have been made 50 years ago purely by the production design. What the fuck was that? I, I was gobsmacked and I'm sitting there watching it with my mum. And I'm going on about it this whole time because I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, look at the colour palette. Look at all the costumes. It's the same colours, but it makes us, when we're looking at it, it looks like it's an old thing. No, I can't see it. I don't know what I'm looking for. Blew my mind. So, um, and it's actually funny because when she realised at the very start that the song Maria is from West Side Story, because we'd heard it on the radio, she hates that song. She goes, oh, that's why I've never seen this. I bloody hate that song. You know, when, when Ansel sang it, she turned to me and she goes, actually, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, uh, what you guys did, you, I, I sat through it. I sat through a film, which I watched once, and I got to the ending of it. And when both of them didn't die, I switched it off. Like, that was bullshit. What the hell? Why is everyone so in love with this film? I couldn't see it for, for years. But then I, I see what Spielberg did with it. And I hear what you did with those orchestrations. And I heard every emotion and I felt every emotion through those performances as a film. Yeah. I, I, four stars as a musical, the jury is still out. Don't come after me, Broadway, please. I'm only human. I have opinions. With this remake of, of the film, you know, everyone, you know, Spielberg is one of the greatest directors of all time. That's always something that is, is the, mentioned, but is the, oh, you, you're saying is the greatest director of all yes, time. Yes, sorry. But yeah, I, I know that he has said he does not want to do um, more musicals, but uh, this was quite possibly my favorite film of his because um, it just, everything was there for me. The Sometimes with a director like Spielberg, you get the films at the beginning of the career, which are those amazing things. But then you get, you know, he's had a long career. This, where he's learned everything from all the other things and is able to do perfection with yes. this, 
Um, I also don't hate me liked this better than the original film. No, that's um, I I completely agree. Uh, 200% this, Vincent. I agree with you that this is an extraordinary film. I thought when I heard that this was happening, first of all, West Side Story has been in my life since I was 10 years old or whatever, because I remember listening to the soundtrack with my father. I, I was gobsmacked by this. I love the musical. I think it's extraordinary. I was in it in high school. I played in the orchestra in it. I did it. I music directed it in my 20s when I was doing a bit of conducting before I started writing. I've conducted the 61 films since 2011, live with orchestra probably 50 times. I love the original movie. There's just something about this movie. To your point, Aaron, the costume design, the sound design, the foley, the effects, everything, everything is in service of the movie. And you're right, Spencer, it's somebody at the top of their game that is giving up something of themselves to a musical that deserves a reading like this. And the way I thought about it, and this was for me posthumously because of how we ended up approaching the musical, the closest analog, and I've said this before, but in the operatic world, I'm a big opera fan, as I, you do different productions, say of Madame Butterfly, Puccini, you'll see lots of different productions. The music is the same, the text is the same, but the production can be wildly different. That's how how we ended up approaching West Side Story. The music is as close to the the original sources that we had, which were the Broadway orchestration, the symphonic dances that Bernstein did for the orchestras, the canonic that, and the movie orchestration. It's a combination. And then whatever we had to do, we would try to just sneak it and fill it in there without bumping you. But what is good about the music? It's so complicated, the music. Technically, te texturally, I've done it with a lot of orchestras here in Europe. They play it as well, if not better than anybody. And we have really great technology now. So you're hearing things now that you would never have heard ever in the sound, in the Broadway or the soundtrack, or even Bernstein's opera recording that he did in 84, I think. And so... We tried to keep the music as close to the original as possible. The lyrics are changed a little bit because Sondheim was involved. So the little mm -hmm. bit of lyrics that were changed, I don't know if you know the Barbara Streisand Broadway album, but she did some Sondheim stuff and he allowed her, he, he didn't mind changing lyrics for artists, but it's him changing the lyric. You know, yeah. it's not some other idiot changing the lyric. It's Sondheim. So everything about it was original. And I was at a lot of the rehearsals, which we did in New York, and Spielberg would like get in a chair and as they were choreographing, they would just go, over and over these sequences. And he'd have somebody rolling them around in a chair. And everyone, all these Broadway performers were so jazzed to be there. Everybody loved every minute of doing that film. Now, it was difficult and everything, but Spielberg kept saying the glue about this is our love for this piece, this canonical piece of American art. And you'd think it's bullshit, but it wasn't. It wasn't bullshit. And, and when we all saw it, you could feel that. And I'm with you, Spent. He's amazing at doing musical. You know, the other analog to this is in 1941, that big dance sequence. There's like a five minute, it, I think it's Treat Williams and I forget the actress's name, but he's chasing her around this dance floor and keeps grabbing her and dancing. And the way Spielberg shot that 
you could see that he really knows how to shoot choreography. Yeah. He's just really good at it, and he's great at music. And he is the best dubber of anybody. The mixer, we call it dubbing. I don't know what you call it in Australia. It's like, yeah, dubbing. It's it's called dubbing, yeah, yeah. mixing. He just understands music really more than anyone does. And I was completely blown away by that film when I saw it. And I just thought this is a nutty idea to remake this movie. Yep. So that's where I come down on the on the movie. Okay, and just on that point, you can even see it in Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, even Jurassic Park 2, which I know, again, some people have some opinions about. You see the rhythm in Spielberg's filmmaking with his action sequences, the way th- the set pieces, the way that John Williams' music complements it and it eases the story or it helps it along, it, it boosts it up or whatnot. It takes you on that journey with it. So it, it was long overdue, in my opinion, Spielberg to give us a musical you know and obviously he's he's producing the color purple which is coming out in December yeah. and cannot wait but goodness gracious me was that nerve-wracking or career-defining having Sondheim hand you the keys to the territory it was really John Williams that handed me the keys to the territory John was sort of peripherally involved I mean he didn't do any writing or anything but it, it, Spielberg I mean John was supposed to do it but it's not a job for John Williams I mean no. there, there's there hardly any writing it it, it was all just slogging through it you know it was it was years it took years to finish because of covid and and Mm -hmm. the the process so i didn't really deal with sondheim showed up well sondheim worked with them on the on the screenplay yeah and then he showed up for the vocal sessions um which i didn't really go to i did a lot of the pre-recording i showed up to some of them but it was um there were a lot of people involved in it um you know, Kimberly, uh, Tesori, Janine Tesori. Yeah. Janine Tesori. Yeah. Yeah. was very much, she was involved earlier than I was. Okay. Yeah. So she, she, she is as responsible, at least for the vocal stuff, you know? Yeah. That she's doing that, that show. Absolutely. Yeah. Spencer. He's obsessed. It took us a while to figure out how to operate together. Spielberg. It's a little, it's a little chaotic without John Williams. He's not used to working without somebody like John, you know, if John Williams had been involved, it would have been a much simpler way to work together, but we had to all figure out how to work it out. But again, we came to this place where it was more of a staying true to the, to everything we did that was different. We had to make a case for it amongst ourselves. Steven a little bit would say things here and there, but mainly it was amongst, it was me and Garth, this person that worked at the Bernstein estate, who's a complete expert about this stuff is like I am. I would consider myself at this point a West Side Story expert. Um, Mm -hmm. Everything that moved into a different direction, or if we had to add a bar, if we had to add a beat, if we had to add, you know, for choreography or this or that or other, we would just go round and round as how are we going to do this without anybody noticing that we're doing anything? Yep. You know, some, some of it is a little better. We succeeded better than others, but but always it was about not bumping with the music. The story can be different, which it was a little bit, but it's still the same spirit, but it's not the same book by any means. It's not the Arthur Lawrence book that they deviated from. Okay. Yes, I have no experience with it at all. In the Broadway show, there's a giant ballet in the second act. 
because the second act is so short. So there's a, I mean, they have Jerome Robbins, so they they did a ballet, but the ballet is only there because it's so lopsided. Because the first act in the show ends with the rumble, which is two thirds of the, almost three fourths of the way through the, the narrative. I mean, after the, after the rumble, Maria finds out that, that Tony killed Bernardo and then they get together and then it's the end and Chino kills Tony and blah, blah, blah. I mean, so in the movie, we stopped well before the, um, I mean, I mean, the it doesn't matter in a movie because it's all one one thing. But there's no. We did use one thing in the ballet that is not in the '61 movie, which was the scherzo, which is part of the ballet sequence in the in the Broadway. That wasn't in the '69 movie, but it's in the symphonic dances. So and it's in the show. So we did that. And Stephen made a fantastic scene out of it that just seemed like it always belonged in the movie. And it would be great in the show too. It's perfect. That's part of the problem with theater sometimes um, is the acts are so lopsided. And I think about, for example, Wicked, which is being adapted into two films. That first act is so much longer than the second act. And presumably you end the first movie there with Defying Gravity. Oh yeah, because yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that it's meant to close an act. So then what, yes. what the heck happens in the second act, in the second movie? No one's going to go see the second movie. It'll just go, go see the first movie. And I think that that's the problem with West Side Story as a show is that it's, it's lopsided there, which is why in the recent revival that ran for like three weeks, Right before COVID, they made it uh, a one act. They cut Maria, so. Um, but they also cut a set and just had video screens. Yeah. What was the point? You've got the movie coming out in a couple of months, kids. Anyways, sorry. I think the original set was just scaffolding and a blank stage because it was because yeah. it was Jerome Robbins. I mean, that was the thing about that show is it's really a musical ballet is yeah. is, is what it is. Uh, I mean, obviously it's, it, you know, obviously that's, that's maybe too simplistic, but, um, you know, I mean, Jerome Robbins is a, was a giant. <laughs> imagine, mm-hmm. imagine working with him in the fifties. And and my dad worked with him on um, the King and I, because uh, he had done small house of uncle Thomas, you know? Um, yeah. And my dad, who was no shrinking violet, he could be a nasty guy. They were just absolutely flabbergasted by how Jerome Robbins treated actors and dancers. He was just vicious. Yeah. I mean, what he did in, in Fiddler, I mean, Fiddler on the Roof would be nothing without those sequences that Jerome Robbins did. Admittedly, I haven't seen it. Oh, God. I know, I know. I just add quickly some crossover here. Um, you did the film Serenity, based on the TV show mm-hmm. Firefly, starring friend of the show Adam Baldwin, who actually came on this show about 10 episodes ago and sang, or 20 episodes ago, and sang Cool from West Side Story. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know, right? It's, of all the people to come on this show and sing West Side Story, it's him. But he sung it on TV with uh, Nathan Fillion. Am I thinking the right Nathan Fillion? Yes. Castle, Firefly, Guardians of the Galaxy. You know. The Rookie, that Nathan Fillion? And the, the Rookie, too, yeah. I didn't know he sang. The Rookie, yes, the Rookie, yes. Um. Now, I did like that Spotify had not just the lyrics, but the actions as well, which I thought that was really cool. That's new. I could sit there and read and not pay attention to what I was listening to, but that's why I, I don't sit there and read. Uh, now, I just want to know, was there ever any concern about the fans? Because the fans can be very vocal about stepping on the toes of such a huge legacy with this show. Oh, uh, I didn't really pay attention. I, hey, I was... I. I... I did. I thought it was a bad idea. I, I, I'm a huge West Side Story fan. I love, like I said, so I, I, I just didn't. No, I, 
I, I've talked to very few people who didn't like it. Most people were really surprised by how much they liked it. They would have maybe a, a, an impression of it, Aaron, like you did. Yeah. I, I, I mean, not that I'm going to hear a bunch of negative stuff. I don't go on. I don't read comments on Twitter. I don't read reviews. Yeah. I so I who who knows? I'm not one to know. But That's anyway, it. anyways, and just lastly for Mr. Spielberg, why did you let Maria live? Juliet is supposed to die. Anyways, it looks like the Jets have jumped the shark, so we're going to plie to an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, Muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge, though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish. So let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. 
All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on Earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbire Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose, she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School Auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo!
And we're back with Fashion Trade Shot. I'm Aaron. I oh, should have spelled that wrong. It's A-A-R-O-N. That's Spencer, spelled B-R-A-T. And we're dragging the iconic Mr. David Newman through our torture chamber. Now, does it get competitive in the world of film music? Everything in Hollywood is competitive. Yeah. You know what's happened, though, now? The competitive in Hollywood has always been of, of how much money the movie makes. Mm-hmm. It's not even how much money you make. I mean, there is a little of that, but it's yeah. mainly how much money the movie makes. And now no one has any idea how much a movie makes or mm-hmm. very rarely. Uh, even when a movie's out in the theater, it's going to be streamed and it, there's no way to know how much yeah. money it makes. So it's harder to compare. So I don't know. It's still competitive, but it's it. everyone's just trying to figure out. I mean, that's why the writers, I think, are on strike in some ways. They want to know they want some transparency because mm-hmm. Hollywood is like clueless if they don't know how much money it, the, the, the product made. They have no way to negotiate. Yeah. So just my little two cents about it. That's my competitive two cents. Awesome. Now, if you could conduct or host a site specific symphony of one of your film scores, what film and where? Well, I, I I wanted to do, which I did, I wanted to do Galaxy Quest at, at Comic-Con in San Diego. And I was able to do that. And then this Matilda thing coming up is a dream. We we did it once in Houston, but doing it in Danny's uh, home state, New Jersey, is kind of a dream for us. We've been trying to do this for, for a while because we did this together. Now, if, if I want to say, like, if I could do any film live with orchestra, yeah, a 20th century masterpiece. I would want to do Spartacus because yep. I think Alex North's score to Spartacus is one of the great, great scores of of of, of all time, uh, uh, particularly the 20th century, if not of all all time. It's four hours. It's it's probably two and a half hours of music. The orchestra is about 135 people, so it's completely not practical. But I've got all the scores, so if somebody ever wanted to pay for it, I, I'd love to do that somewhere, like at a fe- like a festival, like at like at a, a summer festival where there's a symphony orchestra and a youth, you know, a, a young person's orchestra, and just get everybody together and do it, you know. So yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Um... Okay, now uh, this is more sort of sensitive question to ask, I guess. Uh, Spencer's Jewish, but I'm not. I'm a Gentile, I believe the term is. Or I prefer a shiksa. Uh, but Spencer and I discussed Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz writing so many Catholic musicals. And he and I kind of have opposing views on it that he surprised by it. I'm not because I'm sort of like, well, that's an artist that was in them. For yourself, you are, you are a Jewish man. Has your identity ever played into... Your art. My mother was from Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is about as southern Delta as you yeah. can get. And my father is, as I said, from Russian Jewish. We were brought up um, as Episcopalians. I've okay. never even, I've never even, I've never, it's never, we, we had very little, if any, Jewish. Um, there was a bit of Yiddish floating around my house uh, with my dad, but they were, they were really secular Jews. Yeah. Uh, my mom was like super religious fundamentalist. They made a deal. So we weren't brought up fundamentalist because my dad wouldn't allow it. So, yeah. but you know, my dad did all these uh, like Christian religious movies, you know, The Robe and The Greatest Story Ever Told and Song of Bernadette. And, you know, he used to, he used to joke about, my mom used to, they used to joke about that all the time. You know, what's he doing, doing all these, you know, really super religious epics. But, you know, those are the movies being made, you know, and, and you, they're all human stories, no matter what 
how how what your upbringing is so I, I yeah don't know. yes and that's how i say it but spencer and i have had not really arguments about it but we've sat on opposite sides of the fence now how many times have you smashed the keys of a piano in frustration a lot yeah yeah awesome and has something good come from it uh no 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 i was a i entered college as a pianist Mm-hmm. So the the piano, ha- I have a love hate thing with the piano. I loved the violin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was a really good pianist. Don't get me wrong, but I um and then and then when I started writing, it was on the piano because there was no you know there wasn't all the gear and technology that there is now. Uh, and it I I have a lot of PTSD from it. A lot of yep. erasing, a lot of a, a, a lot of eraser uh, debris in the keys and in the strings, and and a yep. lot of terror, you know, on the piano. So I love the piano. I'm just being sort of I'm being a little bit facetious, but uh, you know. No, I so. get it. Um, just a, a fun story. A- Andrew Lippa, he did that. Five minutes later, he had written my new philosophy for Kristen Chenoweth. What? Goodness gracious me. He, he yeah. did it on the show. It was the funniest thing. I get you. You, you probably had, you probably had to be there to see how he got from there to there. So sometimes it, you, you think you get from there to there and that's not how you got from there to there. Yeah. For the listeners at home, go listen back to Andrew Lipper's episode. Cause he will play it. There you go. Uh, uh, just touching on another composer, Michael Giacchino scored Werewolf by Night, then directed to the music. Have you ever been in a position of a director using your music first to direct? No, 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 no. Not, not that I not that I know of. I mean, I don't know. I mean, somebody might have done it, but I don't think so. I've had uh, music that's tempted in okay, yeah. to the movie when I'm watching a movie that I'm going to score. I'm hearing music from other films of mine. Yep, I've yep. had that experience, but I, I haven't not on set. No. Is there a director that you would like to have the score ready for that they direct to it? Not really. That's just not my interest in in yeah. film. I, I I would prefer that the music's written after the film is is done. And just yeah, I'm I'm old school, I guess that way. So. Yeah. Well, I've always said that today's film music is tomorrow's classical music. So in two hundred years' time. Which of your scores would you like to see, or you, you won't be there to see it, would you love to be adapted as a ballet? You know what? I like the score of like these obscure movies. Yeah. Like I like the score to 102 Dalmatians. I like the score to um, uh, An Affair of the Necklace, Broke Down Palace. Um, I do like the score to Serenity. I like the score to The Spirit. So Yeah, me too. That I actually wrote three novels listening to film music, and in that was Serenity the spirit uh and there was another one of yours ice age yeah ice age i like too well ice age was a little bit of a difficult movie to score for some reason yeah Yeah, it was um yeah ice age was their first foray into that genre and it was just it was a lot of uh discussion about everything from it it was a lot there was a big chain of people that had to approve of everything it was weird Mm -hmm. i've never done a movie like that exactly like that that was that was so so many people weighing in on on everything and mm-hmm. having to having to wait so long to figure out what the next step was. Oh wow! You know, so um, but it turned out really good. I really like it. But you notice I never did any of the other ones. So no, I did notice that. Take 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 that as it as what what you will. So yeah. Well, the funny enough, that was the lead into the next question because I as I say, I listen to a lot of film scores and I do tend to lean towards animated films because. It sounds to me like you guys have a little bit more freedom or at least you're having more fun 
with what you're producing and and dramas action movies it's a lot of sweeping stuff it 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 can often does like the marvel soundtracks i love them but they do get very repetitive so i was going to ask is there any big differences in the restrictions per genre that you have yeah you know animated is already you have to suspend your belief a bit you know your brain your brain suspends it so uh, it's also much it's 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 much more detailed Mm -hmm. um it handles i i I think it's it handles music it's easier to put music in an animated film quite frankly um there's probably more music so it's a little bit sometimes when when there's just not that much place for music it's hard it's harder to know what to do to to how 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 much information you put in the the music you know you know Aaron you were talking about that and a lot of what people said in the 30s and 40s I think is sort of applicable is that sometimes you view the music as as what we would call counterpoint which is a musical term which means in its most basic sense counterpoint is there are two melodies going on at the same time but they complement each other. So you, you the, the way they use it in film is the film is going on and the music is counterpointing the film. It's a different melody than the film, yeah. but it's complementing what the film is doing. Otherwise, what's the point of having it there? So the more time you have, the, the, the simpler it is to figure that out and do it. And in animation, there's so much specific. I love animation too, because there's just, there's so much detail in it yeah. that, that you see. And it's, it's very musical side of just sort of right off the bat. Just, it's just kind of aches for music. So yeah. a sense of whimsy. Yeah. It's whimsical, but it can get like ice aged. I loved in ice age. It's sort of goofy and they're, you know, but it's a big idea. Yeah. Everyone's going South. But these guys are going north. And as they go north, the snow gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But they're on a quest, right? Mm -hmm. And it just gets darker and darker and darker as they move north, you know, till it heroically uh, comes to a conclusion. Obviously, it's going to be a good conclusion. But there's a part of it where it's kind of hopeless. In the first animated film I did, The Brave Little Toaster, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. No, I've never seen it, but I really Oh, it's a great, actually. it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I will have to watch it. It is very dark at the at the at the end. Oh, um, I highly recommend that movie uh if you've not seen it. It's a prototype of Pixar. You when you see it, you'll see the similarities. So, but that also has a very dark part of it before it resolves. Where, where and we treated that super filmically. Yeah. There's very little comedy in it. Where Ice Age, there's lots of you know one-liners, you know, ha ha da 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 ha da 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 ha like there isn't a lot of those those films you know they yeah. have to have a laugh every three minutes unfortunately so. yes yeah working with john williams i think he's someone that has been certainly in in my life as a musician uh, as a very influential person so just maybe expanding on that what it was like you, to work with him you know john's first job as a professional was playing piano in the film carousel that my father was the music director for at fox wow oh, and so um so also, John's best friend, lifelong best friend, was Lionel Newman, mm-hmm. who was my dad's youngest brother, who ran the music de- department at Fox okay. for um, for years after uh, through the 80s, actually. And Mark Newman, my father's brother, was the first real modern agent. 
He was Jerry Goldsmith's agent and John Williams' agent and Henry Mancini's agent and Alex North's agent, you know, everybody. Uh, he, and he was the first one that dressed nicely in a suit and a tie and was well-groomed and sophisticated uh, rather than the other ones, which were, kind, you know, cigar-smoking agents. So John started kind of advocating for me with my conducting I don't know, in the mid 2000s. And then I started splitting these Hollywood Bowl concerts with them. And then I started doing some Tanglewood concerts with them. He's just been, he's been lovely to me. And yeah, there's no career. I, it's it's an absolutely unique career, his career. He's now, well, when he goes to Berlin and sells out in what, 10 minutes or Vienna and sends out, you know, the snobbiest cities in the world with 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 music. To your point, Aaron, as, as to yeah. w what is film music going to end up being? Mm -hmm. um, not that 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 we know, but um, obviously there is an appetite for it. Yeah. So, so um, uh, I, I also I did a concert in San Diego last year, a John Williams concert that I did by myself. He wasn't there. It, of course, was sold out and, and everything. And I did all of you know I did Jurassic Park and Star Wars and blah blah blah. But I did about eight minutes of the score for. Accidental Tourist. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that movie or yep. that score. Gina Davis. Gina Davis and William Hurt. But that score is as tightly constructed as any film score I've ever that I've ever known about. It's based on four, a, a, tr a major third, minor third, major third, minor third, down, up. And everything is based on these four pitches. And so I, I spent about six or seven minutes trying to explain it a little bit to the audience because it's it's part of his art form that not as many people know about. It it he is so skilled at at, at pretty much everything. He's a wonderful arranger, jazz arranger, you know, pop arranger, anything as well as as these huge uh, blockbuster scores, but also these kinds of movies, the 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 accidental tourist, the the um, like uh, Sabrina score that he did, which features this beautiful piano solo kind of theme that's at once really pretty and seductive, but kind of doomed. It's a relationship between a young person and an older person, and even though it's never part of the story, it's implied that there's something that's that's not going to last very long. It's like a beautiful flower that's going to wilt at some point, and that music to the point of what I'm talking about counterpointing it's counterpointing that 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 there are a lot of people that have a relationship where there's a discrepancy in age so John Williams is able to put this in a piece of music immediately in the main title that that gives you this wistful kind of sad feeling but it's beautiful and sexy in a way and and you know that completely describes the movie and then he he carries through with it through the movie to the conclusion of the movie so it's it's a much more nuanced movie than it might be on the surface so the score for I've done ET a bunch now live with orchestra so I've really studied ET ET is based on also two or three motives. But there is a scene in E.T. where, you, you know, there's the motive that goes, right at the beginning when they're, you know, the, the adults are coming. And, you know, in the movie, like Spielberg, you never see the adults till, you know, just don't, who are these guys that are chasing them? Why are they chasing E.T.? You know, but you never see them and you never figure it out because it's all from the kid's point of view, right? So then that scene where 
E.T. and Elliot, the, the boy and the E.T. are in the closet while D. Wallace, the mother, is reading to the kid, to Drew Barrymore, Gertie, Peter Pan, which, of course, then Spielberg makes a movie about because he's obsessed with Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. And she's reading Peter Pan and that that harp solo, which is a big part of the of, of the music of E.T. I can't even think of another film that has a harp solo used that much, is playing. And it goes, da, 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 and then it trills. It goes, brrrr which is this thing that they do on a harp, which is called the bisbiliando. And it's like it's like Tinkerbell's fluttering wings, you know. But it's also E.T.'s music that has connected with Elliot, you know. So anyway, they play the scene and the camera moves out of the closet where you see E.T. and you know, that's where he hurts his finger and he goes, ouch, and then E.T. fixes it. And then the camera pulls out, right? And you see this truck and you hear this noise. And then... You hear a flute play that that motive that I just that I sang before about the adults, and it goes dum bum 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 bum. So it's like the music is still like inside the house, but it's moved outside into the world of the adults, whatever that is. It's completely, utterly nuanced with this totally simple surface of nothing happening, just simple theme and harmony and a few motives here and there. And then, and then this, and it's so extraordinary that moment. And I get chills every time I, we, we, we do it. Um, And that's what, to me, that's, that's the essence of what film music can do. And it's its own weird art form. It has its own set of formal parameters, rules that are broken. Of course, like everything else can be broken. All kinds of people do all kinds of things, but it is not concert music per se, but it can be performed as concert music in the right context. I don't think making arrangements of it is the right context. At least I don't think of it. I'm more of an originalist about it, but it needs context. It can't, it's not like a piece of an abstract piece of music that can just be played without some something else going on. All right. Anyway, that's my spiel. No, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining. It's been an absolute honor. It really, really has. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I hope I didn't blurb too much. No, no. Beautiful episode. I can't wait to hear it. So. Anyways, a huge thank you to David Newman for joining us. I am absolutely gobsmacked. That was an amazing episode. You can find Dave on Twitter at dnewmanm5. That's one word. I'll spell it out. D-N-E-W-M-A-N-M-5. Dnewmanm5. And Spencer is at Spencer Share underscore. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-S-H-E-R underscore. And you can find us at Thrush and Treasure on Twitter or at Thrush and Treasure podcast on Instagram. Also on YouTube, Facebook and Patreon at Blooming Theatricals. Also, Steven Spielberg, if you ever hear this, please, please, please come on my show. That's never going to happen. Just thought I should throw it out there. Also, look below in the description for tickets to the Matilda in concert with the New Jersey Symphony. As David said, there will be Danny DeVito narrating live. We are allowed to announce it now because the embargo has broken. He actually told us it was literally the day before it dropped. Uh, Anyways, uh, there was one other thing that I wanted to say. Oh, also, you can catch Mr. J-Wags if you're in the Utah area in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory He is playing Willy Wonka, and he is absolutely amazing, getting excellent reviews, and it looks stunning. 
So if you're in that area, go check that out. It'll be running until October. Anyways, that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we had making it. Uh, You take care, look after each other, and we shall see you next time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. See you.